Welcome to Atomic Moms, a modern parenting podcast about the joys and complexities of caring for our children and ourselves. I'm Ellie Noss, and since 2014, I've been celebrating and commiserating with best-selling authors, experts, and listeners around the world. Okay, everybody. I am very excited. I'm on the phone with our guests in Washington, D.C. I'm going to try really hard not to give them my preschool cough over Skype. They are Ned Johnson and Dr. Bill Sticksrude. Ned Johnson is the founder of Prep Matters, D.C. Metro's premier provider of academic tutoring services, test preparation, and educational planning. Dr. Bill Sticksrude is a clinical neuropsychologist. He's a member of the adjunct faculty of the Children's National Medical Center, and he holds a faculty appointment as assistant clinical professor of psychiatry at the George Washington School of Medicine. This is all to say I have an excellent taste in my podcast guests. Together, they have written The Self-Driven Child, the science and sense of giving your kids more control over their lives. It's hitting bookstores today when I'm releasing this podcast, which is Tuesday, February 13th. It's an early Valentine's for all y'all. So if there's one book, this is serious, mamas, if there's one book I'd recommend to parents who are raising children all ages, I'm talking preschool through 12th grade. This is the book. Nobody's paying me to say this, but this is the book. And uh, you guys, you can feel free to use that blurb on the paperback when it comes out. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. So, Ned, we're done. Let's wrap. Let's wrap. So, Ned, let's start with you. I want to put you in the hot seat first. What What does it mean to be a self driven child? What a great question. For us, a self driven child is one who has intrinsic motivation. It's a, it's a kid who's doing things because he wants to, because she's excited, um, isn't overly anxious, and isn't doing it because of external praise or pressure. And so, uh, Doc, Dr. Bill, what was your mission in writing this book? The, the main reason we wrote this book is that we see so many kids who are highly anxious and, and a lot of kids who have what we consider to be disordered motivation, meaning either excessively, obsessively driven or very little drive to, to develop themselves and become successful. And when we realized that a low sense of control is the most stressful thing in the universe and that you can't become self-motivated if you don't have a sense of control or autonomy over your life. We thought, we got to write about this. We've got to let parents know how important the sense of control is for kids. If we don't want them to be highly anxious, and if we don't want them to be, have what we would consider to be a motivational disorder. God, I love that phrase. I've never heard that before, a motivational disorder. I definitely had one growing up. Um, I'm a total Hermione. I was a, I'm a recovering perfectionist <laughs> for sure. And it's been quite a journey. There are a lot of us. No, we talk in the book about kids who have what we consider to be four kinds of motivational problems. You know, one is kids who don't want, they want to be successful, but they can't get themselves to work hard enough. Is one of kids who work really hard at some stuff, but not the stuff that parents want them to, to work hard at, like namely schoolwork. You know, and, and kids who have... Um, who have very little motivation for, for virtually anything, and kids who are kind of obsessively driven, the Hermione Grangers that we yeah. talk about in the book. Yeah, and neat. it turns out that, that having a healthy sense of control or autonomy is the most important thing for helping these kids who have any kind of motivational problem. 
why are children more susceptible to anxiety today? I mean, it's shocking to me that my daughter is more likely to be anxious than my great-grandparents in the Depression. Like, why? Well, there's a, there's a lot of speculation. And, and so there, let's, let's take four or five reasons. One is that young people sleep so much less than, than they did even 20 years ago. And if you sleep less, you're bound to be more anxious. One is the incredible influence of technology on kids' lives, which makes their lives go faster, makes them more, more attentively detailed, and makes them rest less. So technology, almost by definition, makes life go faster and it makes it more stressful. Um, and, and Ned, do you want to add on? Well, yeah. I mean, have you seen the movie Inside Out? I expect a lot of, of your parents have. Yes. And you remember that little girl, Riley, right? Who, who she's great and she. And she's joyous, right? And but over time, and 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 she could handle a lot of different things. But one way to think about stress and, and anxiety is it's just a total balance of input and output. W- what are the things that put stress into our lives, and what are the things that relieve them? And you know, we have a lot of the same stresses that maybe our parents, our grandparents have. But but kids today also have stressors that didn't exist back then. And technology is, is probably one of the most implicated. But then additionally, the things that were naturally helpful to being outflows of stress are, are diminished. You know, we have less time for play. We have less time with, with, you know, with our families. Our parents who can be stress sponges, right? If they're more stressed, they can't do that as well. And so I think a lot of times people are looking, you know, for, for a single, uh, you know, magic bullet. If only it weren't for this, I wouldn't be, my kid wouldn't be stressed. If, or if only she did this, she wouldn't be stressed. But if you think about this as, as kind of a, a, a total balance of inflow and outflow, then that means there are a lot of things that could be helpful. And in, in our book, we, we go through, you know, multiples of different things. And, and they're things that probably a lot of moms are already doing, uh, but maybe some ones that might be new to them too. Well, I, I want to just go ahead and say that you, at the end of each chapter, I love how you guys have a section that's what you can do tonight. So it's not like what you can do down the line if you feel like it, but it's like these great action steps of what you can bring into your home like this very moment. And I really appreciated that. Can you really fast? I've wondered for years, what is the actual, what is the difference between stress and anxiety? Dr. Bill, will you answer that one for me? Well, anxiety is is really an experience of stress. You know, when we're, we, we aren't anxious unless we're stressed. You know, what, what anxiety means in part is that our stress response, our fight or flight response is turned on. And, and some people, we, we, when we say fight, the, the fight part of the fight or flight response often manifests as anger and resistance. And the flight part it manifests as anxiety and avoidance. So anxiety is, is really a manifestation of stress. It's one manifestation of stress. It's one of the ways that we experience stress. And I see kids who uh, have a very sensitive stress response, meaning that they can be very easily stressed. And some of them are more inclined to become anxious and, and avoidant. And other kids are more inclined to be in your face and defiant and to fight back. There's a performance curve that shows that when, if, you're, if you have no stress, people usually need a little bit to sort of activate them, right? If you play, a, if you play me in tennis, right, and you're pretty good, well, I'm lousy. I'm not going to be good enough to, to, to get your game on, right? But if you play against someone who's just as good, you're going to really engage and be at your best. But if it's too high, all of a sudden you blink your eyes and then Serena Williams is across it. Well, not only are you, you clearly aren't going to win, but you're not going to do your best, play your best tennis. 
And so one of the challenges with stress is that you can have two kids who have the exact, they're experiencing the exact same stressor, but their perceived stress or their anxiety can be wildly different. And one feels really thrilled and energized and the other kid feels overwhelmed by it. Mm-hmm. So this leads me to home base. You guys in the book, you mentioned, okay, I'm going to go ahead and read this quote because I love it. It's teachers can teach, coaches can coach, guidance counselors can outline graduation requirements, but there's one thing only parents can do, love their kids unconditionally and provide them with a safe base at home. So I absolutely love that. I kind of feel like I'm Oprah when I'm reading it. Um, But I want to give some parental anxiety voice here, okay? So I know there's a lot of moms out there who are struggling. And so I'm just going to say out loud what I have a feeling some of them might be saying, which is if I go easy on this kid, you know, he'll never turn in his homework. He'll fail out of school. Our safe base will still be housing him and when he's in his 20s. You know, part of my job as his mother is to ride his ass and make sure that I can get him to do what he doesn't want to do. So, Ned, if this mom walks into your office, like, what's your rebuttal? Well, first, I'd, I'd be sympathetic. And I, I, understand, I understand why you feel that way. Your job to be worried and concerned about your kid being successful going forward, but the the, the research doesn't support it, and, and, and certainly neither does our experience. That that riding a kid over and over, he's going to do just what's necessary. But but the most helpful thing you can do is to be less anxious and trust that he's going to figure this out. I'll, I'll tell you the story. When my my son was fifth grade, maybe uh, I'm I'm making dinner and I'm watching my wife uh, and my kid, and, and and she says, "Well, what do you mean you didn't hand this? And how, how why did you?" forget to hand in the homework. And he turns and looks at her and relatively calmly and said, well, you, you didn't remind me to. And I'm like, hold up, hold up, time the heck out here. And I looked at him. I said, first of all, pal, this is your work. This is your school. This is your life. You're responsible for this. You do not throw your mo- mo- mother under the bus. And two, lady, are you kidding me? <laughs> right? Uh, of course he feels that way because you're on top of him about everything and you're super academic and super successful and she organized our whole life. But, but as long as you do this, he's going to think that someone other than him is responsible for it. And that's a broken model. I mean, I have parents who think, you know, that they're, you know, my wife, when she went, she swears, when she went to college, her wife, her mom was dropping her off first day of college. And in her own stress said to her daughter, I just, I'm so worried. I just don't know how you're going to make it through college without me. <laughs> you know, so for, in terms of both from a motivation and a stress perspective, the science shows that the best thing you can do is have a, have a challenge that's a little bit stressful and then fully recover. And so what we know that life is, is stressful. We want home to be safe so we can have this, these great adventures that might be stressful when we call them lives. And then you come home and you're with mom, you're with dad, and you fully recover. And this is how you develop the resilience that, that we want our kids to have. That's beautiful. Bill? What they respond to in, in, in adults and in their parents is warmth and responsiveness. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that there's ever a time when, when, we, when we outgrow the benefit we get from adults who are warm and responsive. And the, cha- the second chapter of our book is called, I Love You Too Much to Fight With You About Your Homework. And the idea is that fighting takes two. And as a parent, you decide, I'm not going to fight with my kid about my homework. Because I, I want homework, not, I want home not to be filled with stress. Because life is stressful enough. I want home to be a safe place. And I'll offer my kid any help that he needs. I'll get him a tutor if he, if he needs it. But I'm not going to try to fight with him every night like somehow I could get him to do his homework. 
And we've had many families over the years say things like, when I told my kid that I love you too much to fight with you about your homework, and I actually decided not to fight, the temperature in our house went down by 20 20 degrees. And and moms out there, if you're wondering, well, how can I talk to my teacher about this? Uh, uh, my kid's teacher. Oh, that's a Freudian slip, right? I mean, my daughter's only four, but clearly I'm ready to get involved. <laughs> um, that, that you guys give some really, really excellent, uh, not only like advice, but the language that you can use. Um, because I often get tongue-tied. It's really, I really appreciate how you guys give the language you can use to um, communicate with the teacher in a respectful way, but also where you are an ally of your child. Yeah. So I, I do have a question, though, about lowering the temperature of the home, because right now I mm-hmm. have a six-month-old daughter and I have a four-and-a-half-year-old. And my four-and-a-half-year-old, she's very, very bright. She loves her teachers. She'll do anything for an authority figure except for me. And she's, but she's also very strong-willed at home. And she wants all the control all the time. But I feel like my child really loves that, the pushing against. It's like she wants to push against me. And I'm afraid that if I say, you know what, I'm going to just kind of step aside instead of being a blockade, that I don't know that she'll just like fall out the window or something. Like how, what do you do about kids that really want that resistance? I, I think you support it. You, you support, you, you say that you say things like it's so, what I, one of the things I love about you is, how, is your strong will. And I love the fact that when you care about something, you're really persistent about it. You really stick with it. You, know, you don't want to give up. And at the same time, it kind of wears me down, you know, sometimes. And, and, and I want to be able to, to have sometimes where, I just, where you just go along with me and just have that kind of discussion with them to, to try to, to um, you, you, as you said, you, you negotiate. And it's, weir- it's wearisome. But if we think that somehow we could make our kid do something, one of the things we say in the book is, is that you really can't make a kid do something against her will. And we, 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 can, we, can, we can pick them up and, and basically put them in their room, but we can't make them do anything. And we think that making peace with that, making peace with the idea that you really can't force a kid to do something is really, really ultimately very liberating. Mm-hmm. And so, but I, I would say that I, I would I would talk about how cool it is that this kid has such a strong will that's going to take her far in life. At the same time, it could kind of wear people down. And I want sometimes where we just go along with each other. That's beautiful. Or you go along with me. Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it makes me um, also think about how in previous generations, you know, love has been used as such a. Um, I don't know. I think I did a lot of things for love or, or hoping for the love and approval, you know, and, and my parents would say, oh, my God, it, you know, our love is unconditional. Of course it's unconditional. But it, I, that was still a, a dysfunctional sort of motivator for me. Yeah. And so it's, it's interesting that so many moms now, and I'm so happy that I get to raise my kids now, that we're really kind of becoming more conscious of that of not using our love as a, as a way of getting what we want from our kids. The message, the message that kids feel when we truly feel like, I love you, there's nothing you could do. I used to say to my kids when they were little, there's nothing you could do 
that would make me stop loving you a thousand percent. And in fact, I'd brainstorm with them when, when they were preschool age. Or I'd, I'd brainstorm, what, what, what do you think you could do? And they come up with, with you know, naughty things. That, that, that I said, no, that wouldn't do it either. And I, and I think that the, the message that there's nothing you could do uh, that, that would make me love you less than a thousand percent is a really great message. And when kids feel that, it really, it, it helps them be courageous. It, it helps them trust themselves. It, and it makes it more likely that they come to us and seek advice. They want our help as opposed to fighting it. And I think it's a great point, Bill. And, and I, for me, I think a little about the you know Christian theology of you know I, I I always love the sinner. I don't love the sin. And so I can say to my daughter, you know, I, I really that that was really frustrating for me, and and that made me sad that you did that. But really, but but I, I mean, but I love you, you know, forever and forever. I just wish we wouldn't. I wish we could come up with a different way to do that, because I see um, my kids getting into school, particularly my daughter, who's got a kind of an anxious temperament, and I think she's having a hard time separating what her teachers feel about her, think about her as a person versus as a student. And she's got that all mixed up. So if she doesn't do well on a, on a quiz and her, and her teacher says, well, you really should, whatever, whatever, that she feels that she's in trouble, that they don't like her, which yeah. is deeply threatening as opposed to, you know, maybe we need to come up with another way to study that so you really get those definitions down. And I think we can start with that really early on with kids that I, I love you always, but I don't always love everything that you do. And, and, but let's be clear on, the, on that difference. Mm. So I, I I grew up with uh, a brother who had ADHD, and so I was like this crazy anxious perfectionist who was studying all night. And my brother, uh, <laughs> he was not. And it was so cool to read and hear about sort of like both of those types of children. And I suddenly had so much more empathy for my parents and for my brother because I, I mean, it seems obvious. That, you know, that people have different strengths and weaknesses, but I could not understand why my brother was constantly having teacher conferences. I, I really, <laughs> I, I couldn't get it because I was like, what do you mean you're not turning this in? Like that would be, because again, what you just said about your own daughter, like I would take it so deeply personally. Yeah. And so I'm working on that. But what I really appreciate is when you guys describe ADHD and you talk about how so much of our behavior is dictated by our brains. I'm wondering if you can share a little bit about, like, what's the most important things that a parent who has, who's raising a child with ADHD, like, can you give them a little bit of a pep talk, Ned? <laughs> well, I'll tell you a story, but I have this boy who's a junior, he's, and he's fantastic and he's remarkable, and he's sort of a hot mess of ADHD. And, and I, I asked him, I said, do you, do you know what ADHD is? And he kind of, well, no, that's not really. I said, has anyone explained it to you? And he said, well, no. I said, well, here's one way to think about this. So I drew this on the paper, piece of paper. I said, here's you, and he's at one end of the paper. And here's your goal at the other end of the paper. And you start going towards that. And you're going, okay, I'm working hard at this. And then you make this hard zig to the left, squirrel. And you go over there, and you go, oh, shoot, I'm supposed to. And you zig back towards this, the straight line goal. And then you overcorrect. And then this zigzag back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, until you get about an inch away from the goal and then you power through. Mm. And he looked at me, he said, that's my entire life. And I said, I know it is. Yeah. <laughs> and he, but here's the thing, here's the thing, this issue, because it, it's chemical, not character. 
you have a relative deficit of a various brain chemicals that, that make it easy for you to motivate for things that you really care about, but you have a really hard time motivating for things that are boring. Am I right about that? Oh my gosh, that's totally me. Mm-hmm. I said, there are other people who can just by willing themselves motivate for anything, even if it's the most boring nonsense in the world. That's and me. And we all, we want, <laughs> we want different types of people in the world. Right. I waste <laughs> right. so much of you my know, life I mean, on boring nonsense, guys. <laughs> Well, but but you we want both, right? We you know we we will go back to your stuff. You want some people who can sit there. I mean, right? I mean, you know, so the part of the challenge that I think that so many moms have, particularly if they've got an adolescent boy, is they can anticipate a problem way the heck down the road, yes. and they start to get worried about it. You know, weeks before it shows up, and the kid isn't thinking about this until it's hitting right in the face. But as moms, you know, or dads too, right? We we're so worried about that outcome that we respond before the reality has hit him. And now we're upset and frustrated, but now my, my kid is responding to me, not to the reality that's out there. Mm. And it's hard because, you know, I, I was talking to this mom the other day and, I, and, and uh, I said, with all due respect, I suspect that it's been a very long time since you've had the brain of a teenage boy. She <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> looked at me, it's like, yeah. And it's, it's just, it's hard. But if we have confidence that we know that this prefrontal cortex is the slowest part of the brain to develop mm-hmm. and that the things that your kid is struggling with now in fifth grade or seventh grade or ninth grade, it, it won't be the same challenge for him years from now, especially if we allow him to be responsible for his own life because our brains develop on the ways that they're used. And so, you know, if it's really hard to watch your kid waste time or not hand his homework, in some ways, just don't watch, right? Particularly if it's a middle school, for who cares, right? And you just pop in and, and say, can I help? But you don't manage it every moment because you're depriving his brain by being responsible for his own life. Oof, but that's so much work for mamas. Like the idea that we then have to take the personal responsibility of recognizing that our children are not a reflection, our, our children's achievements are not a reflection on us, and that our kids getting into these top schools is not a reflection on us. So much of uh, these kids striving for these elite institutions is like about the pressure around them because we're always, you know, asking teenagers, well, where do you think you're going to go? Where are you going to go to school? We want our children to be able to go on their own journeys, but then we have to trust that because we're their home base, that they'll make it where they're supposed to make it. And it's hard because it's a lot easier to listen to school directors or other authority figures that are saying, you know, your kid should be doing this homework or your friends down the street or just sort of the peer pressure (laughs) that parents feel about their children's achievements. And um, it can be overwhelming. And so then that leads us to our own work in accepting our kids for who they are, trusting that they will flourish with, you know, when they follow what actually drives them versus what I was talking about earlier, which is like seeking um, sort of love and approval by working really hard instead of taking a real hard look at like, well, what is it that actually lights me up or what really lights my child up? Because that's where your future will be. Um, so uh, I want to ask lastly about this radical downtime idea. 
can you guys discuss what the benefits are for our brains? Because you talk about sleep, and I I skimmed the sleep chapter because I've got a six-month-old, and it was, like, too painful to read. (laughs) But I'll get back to that one. Um, But for now, the idea of radical downtime, and, you know, a lot of moms are talking about radical self-care, and we did an episode on that. But I really liked how you guys brought in the brain science because I had never thought – you know, I've also read, you know, that meditation, it changes your brain. But can you just kind of like talk to us about what are the benefits to our brain when we have radical downtime? So we, we think about radical downtime as, as something different than um, playing golf or other things that are relaxing or, 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 or going out and playing in the playground. We, we think that, that life has become so fast paced and so loud and so stressful that we need periods of radical downtime where we aren't doing anything. And in our book, we, we talk about mind wandering, having, having time to just let, just let your mind wander about meditation. And there's a separate chapter about one of the, maybe the ultimate radical downtime, which is sleep. And the, the thing is that all of nature rests. And what we don't have in our current society, what our kids don't have, the kids that we see every day who are, who are yawning all day, what they don't have is appropriate balance between rest and activity. Mm-hmm. And we don't have enough rest, and we need more radical downtime to recover from how stressful life is. And there's a part of the brain called the, well, actually circuits in the brain called the default mode network. And it turns out we've known for about 15 or 20 years now that there's a, that this circuits in the brain, they only activate when we aren't doing something else, when we're just sitting with our own thoughts. And it, 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 the science suggests that this part of the brain is really important for kids developing a sense of empathy and a sense of their own self. Because when we, when we, we have time just to reflect, like we do when we our mind wander or when, if we meditate, that we reflect on ourselves, reflect on other people, and we reflect on our life, and it, it develops empathy. It develops a sense of, of, of self. And uh, so we, we think that this radical downtime is an important antidote to the mind-racing, mind-scattering, mind-numbing effects of, of 24-7 technology that kids are exposed to. Um, I did, did a study a few years ago of, of kids, middle school kids with ADHD who, who learned transcendental meditation, and they all reported after three months of meditation that they were less anxious, that they could focus better. And this one kid who was wildly impulsive said that before he started meditating, if he was walking down the hall and somebody bumped him, he'd just turn around and hit him. But after <laughs> meditating for, 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 for three months, he, 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 uh, he said, if somebody bumps me in the hall, I stop and think, should I hit him or not? Wow. And we thought that, that this, this period of radical downtime really made this kid less impulsive, more yes. reflective, more able to stop and think about his, his, uh, his behavior. No, that's brilliant. And it actually makes me think about policemen and how our cops should be meditating because that idea that they could be potentially yep. less yep. reactionary in those moments. Um, that's, that, thank you so much for sharing that. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much. I'm going to get in my budget just so I can fly out to places and do it in person. <laughs> <laughs> well, keep, keep, keep up the great work. Thank you yeah, both so keep, much. Thank you, Elliot. It was fun. So, listeners, I'm going to bring something back, which is the mom bomb. It's been like a year since I've done it, but I want to share a quote or something that can make you 
you know, give you some inspiration or a good kick in the butt for the week. And so I found one on Bill's uh, website. He's got a lifespan neuropsychology practice, and I really liked this. It's success is measured in terms of happiness, health, and love. So I'm wishing all of you listeners much success in the coming week. The book is The Self-Driven Child, published by Viking. And next week, we have nationally recognized expert Patty Fitzgerald here to help us understand our role in keeping our children safe from sexual abuse. It's going to be our very first Atomic Moms recorded in front of a live audience. Uh, you're going to want to listen to that one. This episode was produced, hosted, and edited by yours truly, Ellie Noss. Our original composition by Jeremy Turner and sound engineering by Owen O'Neill. Join us on Instagram at Atomic Moms, our Facebook page, and our private community on our Facebook group. Thank you for sharing this episode on social media and especially with your friends. All right, everybody, until next week, trust in your goodness, live out your greatness. Rock on, Atomic Moms. I love what you just said. That's a that great so sign-off. Cool. I, I love your ending, Ellie. That's incredible. <laughs>